The management briefing seminars represent one of the most important conferences in the global automotive industry. On this week's show, three panelists talk about the top issues that came out of this year's conference. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine This Week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. So hello and welcome to AutoLine this week. We've got a great program for you. We're situated at the Management Briefing Seminars in Traverse City, Michigan. We're in front of a live audience right now. And the reason that we're holding this show here is this conference is one of the most important in the, in the world, really, in the automotive industry. We've been here for two and a half days. We've heard from all kinds of speakers from all over the industry, in fact, from even different places in the world. We've got to recap what was going on here because we learned so much. And let me introduce to you who's on our panel. We've got Jada Smith. She's from a really a brand new supplier company called Aptiv that was carved out of a very traditional supplier. So we're going to get a, a viewpoint that's a little bit maybe not from the past, but definitely into the future. We've also got John Murphy from Merrill Lynch Bank of America, one of the, the top analysts on Wall Street who covers the automotive industry. And we've got Carla Bailo. She is the CEO of the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, which puts on these management briefing seminars. So I've got to say to all three of you, thank, for, thank you for being on this panel. But let's learn. I mean, Carla, we, we've heard from all different kinds of people over two and a half days here. What's one of your key takeaways from the conference? I think I, I heard a resounding theme. Uh, it started Monday with really um, the, the keynote from Rich Sheridan talking about disrupting yourself, making the workplace attractive, making the joy of working, and, and really bringing out an engaged workforce to bring out the best in people and what they can deliver. And Richard, and from where? When? What's he do? From Menlo Innovations. He's, he's the CEO, came out of the corporate world and, and started his own small software company. They work out of a basement in Ann Arbor, actually. Um, he has not moved it, even though clearly he has funding to do so. But it's a very open environment, makes the teams work in pairs, changes up the pairs every five days, has now his eighth baby in the workplace, in dogs and whatever. And it works. It, amazingly, it works. So I encourage everybody, read his books. He has two books, Joy, Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. And go see the place because you will be transformed. And even if you think you're a progressive leader, you can learn a lot. We heard similar themes then throughout some of the other speakers during the week. Susan Brennan was talking about, again, moving from the traditional automotive industry into the Silicon Valley and how there's a difference in thinking there and how to reinvent yourself. And I think in this you know, 
really escalating era of technological growth, if you're not continually reinventing yourself, you're going to get behind. So you're really talking about workplace transformation, taking an existing workplace and transforming it, and maybe not even spending a whole lot of money to do so. Exactly. It's, it, it's a lot of behavior change, changing the way you think, changing the way you operate, stopping committeeism and, and meetings continuously through the day, letting leaders be visionary leaders to, to move the companies in the directions they need to move today and trust your staff to manage the day-to-day -day stuff. Real good. John Murphy, you bring a Wall Street set of eyes to this conference. What really stuck out for you? What was mo the, maybe the most meaningful thing that you learned here? Well, I think, I think one of the resounding things for the, for the industry is this cyclical versus secular tug of war, right? I mean, I think as we touched on on the panel this morning, there's some real cyclical, cyclical risks, but there's great secular opportunities. And identifying those secular opportunities in a court of future transition sort of way is really difficult for the industry, but there's huge opportunities as the in industry transforms. So what, what do you mean by secular op opportunity? Translate well, I, that for I me. mean, I, I think the industry, first of all, does a great job of delivering travel utility to consumers around the world in a way that's not appreciated generally by the investment community and some of the folks that actually use that transportation. So I, th I think that's really important to recognize, but understanding how to make that better over time. And, and we simply kind of think it's lowering the cost per mile, increasing the demand, right, the demand function, getting you know, it available to, to more and more people, and increasing the speed of travel. Those kinds of changes will increase utility to the consumer and, and more consumers over time and open up the opportunity set for, for investment. Now that's you know, through um, autonomous drive is probably the keystone right, to get a mod, a, a mod working, but there's a lot of things from level one to level three um, along the way that, that, really, that really can help change and transform things and that's why you have some great suppliers that are here uh, on stage with us, have been on stage that really will help the industry get there. But that opportunity is huge. The risk, though, is that some of that investment could be failed um, and not really come to fruition. And if you're going through this secular downturn and making those investments that don't come to fruition, it can be a tough time to, to manage through that. Yeah, we'll get into more of that, too. But let's hear from Jada Smith. Uh, what stood out in the conference to you? Well, from a technical perspective, it's interesting that there's areas that um, everyone tends to kind of agree on. We need to collaborate. Um, not just within the industry, but across industry. Standards are important, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure. Um, but then there's areas where maybe there's still some debate happening. You know, is automotive grade that important? Is and explain grade automotive grade. So in the automotive industry, um, we test more rigorously than they do in, let's say, consumer space. Um, and you're talking in terms of software. And, right? and not just in terms of software, it's the entire system. So it's software, it's hardware, um, it's how they're built, it's how they're integrated together. Um, it's temperature range, for example. It's making sure that we can operate at um, very low temperatures, very high temperatures. It's making sure that um, there's water intrusion tests, making sure that if you're um, in a, a salty environment, like right by the coast, that the car is still going to function. Those are very different than what happens in the consumer space. If your phone gets hot, it says I'm hot. It's not going to work till it cools down, right? The car can't do that. So the testing um, and the, the validation requirements that we put the entire system through um, is different. Um, it's more rigorous. It's harder. And that's, it's hard to do. It's a challenge, right? Um, and so then the question <clears throat> comes up, how, how much of that is necessary as we think about the future? And, if we do that, will that stifle innovation? Um, and those are the questions that keep coming up, and it seems like that there's still some debate from various parties 
about what makes sense. Um, so there's some, some things that everyone agrees on. There's some things that are still being debated and, and, um, and it's interesting and bringing everyone together in this type of environment allows those discussions to take place. You know, you're right in that because the consumer electronic industry moves so much faster than the auto industry, but we've all had our telephones crash. We've all had our laptops crash. We can't afford that in a car. So how do you help the industry move much more quickly, try to keep pace with the electronic industry, and yet have this automotive grade? Do you see different parts of the car taking different approaches, maybe the in in infotainment? can not be automotive grade, but anything that runs the basic uh, parts of operating a car has got to be automotive grade. Or what do you see? Well, automotive grade is important. Um, it, it's just like, let's look at aerospace, look at an airplane. Lives are at stake when you get on an airplane, right? Um, and you can't necessarily say, well, it's okay if this part of the airplane isn't as safe as the rest part or, or not as validated to the same level. Um, that said, when it comes to other types of regulations, like around functional safety, for example, there are various degrees, and that's where uh, companies like Aptive and others can come in and say, okay, based on um, our systems integration expertise, this product needs to be at this level, whereas this product can be at a different level of functional safety, for example. Um, from a testing perspective, your phone can have a bad day, your car cannot, because lives are at stake. So now, what does a bad day look like? That's where things are, are a little bit different when it comes to an infotainment system versus an active safety system. But that's where we collaborate very carefully and closely with our customers to make sure that we've got all of that um, locked down and defined and that we test and um, deliver systems that meet those requirements. Carla, one of the biggest topics at the conference, an ongoing topic over multiple days here, electrification and where that is all going. Uh, what were some of the things that maybe you got out of that conversation? And, and one I, 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 that came up uh, in the discussions is we see a lot of battery electric models about to hit the market in two to three years' time, and yet we don't see the consumer demand yet for them. How do you think that might get resolved? It, it's, we're going to have to watch other markets besides the U.S., quite frankly. We're going to have to see what kinds of incentives are put in place in Europe and China to continue to drive the market. Interestingly enough, even with the big incentives that we see in China, we're still not seeing the consumers purchasing those vehicles, so there is a big dichotomy. Or, in or not in enough numbers, you mean, because they're, EV sales are growing, purchasing, but not fast enough, But not right? fast enough to, to, to meet you know, what everyone's putting in their pipeline. So it's going to be you know, really trying to balance that consumer demand with the dollars that you're putting into the investments and how you're going to make the plants be able to be more flexible, to be able to put the different propulsion systems into the different products so that you can meet that global demand. It's going to depend what kinds of you know, incentives come in for licensing, incentives that come in for purchasing, also to help with charging in the house. Is the charging infrastructure really going to grow fast enough so that people feel confident that they'll be able to charge in, in multiple locations. Are we gonna have propulsion stations in the future where you can get gas, you can get electric, you can get hydrogen? How are we gonna develop the entire system that really needs to propel electrification as we want it to as a society and as an industry? John, you already touched on this. I mean, of uh, companies, both automakers and suppliers, having to make big bets on this technology. Let's stick with electrification for the moment. 
the payoff isn't there. Nobody's making a profit on these vehicles. Sure. I mean, I think if you look simplistically on, on the cost side, I mean, we do this in our Who Makes the Car analysis, a $22,000 component cost um, before final assembly for an ICE vehicle right now in the U.S. And then if you layer in or transition to a, a full electric, you're talking about thirty, almost $35,000. So there's a $13,000 gap there in, in, in cost, right, for a comparably equipped vehicle. That's got to be changed over time. And sort of our forecast is that maybe happens around 2030 uh, in, in the U.S. market. I think the other thing to be very careful of is the dichotomy in, in the regulatory environment between the U.S. and Europe um, on diesel versus gas has proved that regu the regulatory environment can screw things up pretty badly. And I think the industry and everybody needs to kind of realize that there was the issues at VW for Dieselgate, but that was driven by a regulatory regime that forced, tried to force diesel. And that's the last you know, real shift in, in, in regu the regulatory environment or push we've seen for powertrain technology, and it was failed, ma massively failed in, in Europe. I mean, there's a massive failure there. So I think that you know, the, all the, this, this significant regulatory push towards uh, EVs as, as you know, the this, this solution makes sense. The industry has got to participate in the greening uh, and cleaning up uh, of the environment. But we've got to be really careful that these regulatory regimes don't create more problems than, than they solve. And the last evidence is it really screwed up. It looks like 2030, everybody's talking, yeah, things will be great by 2030. How do we get from here to there, especially from a profitability standpoint, or do we not? I, I think this industry has done a wonderful job of driving down costs and delivering and spoiling consumers in, in a way that most industry, in, industries don't. So I do think um, I have a lot of faith that the industry will drive costs down, and sometime around 2030, we'll see some level of profitability on EVs. But we're talking about a 100-year change here. We're not talking about a generational shift. We're talking about a multi-generational shift in, in powertrain because when we look at current powertrains, they've essentially been around more or less in, in a similar form for the last hundred years. We're talking about a total change. So it's going to take a long time for this to be really profitable and, and generate the kind of returns the industry needs. And Jada, I got to believe Aptive is headlong into this rush to uh, electrification. The electrification is important. You know, we always talk about that we're focused on three megatrends. The first is safe. The second is green, the third is connected. Um, and we have, especially from an architecture perspective, a, a broad portfolio of architecture solutions that support both traditional ICE vehicles, low, vo low voltage, um, as well as high voltage, so that we're prepared in the event um, that we see this massive uptick in full BEVs or even the hybrids in between. Um, but as, as they said, it's, it's a shift. It's going to take time. Um, it's, it's an evolution. And it doesn't mean that as we continue to grow towards full EVs, we're not going to have um, vehicles with an engine, whether that's a diesel engine or, or a gas-powered engine. And so it's important um, that we have a range of solutions to support all of those. As automaker, as you approach automakers to sell your technology, how willing are, is Aptive to maybe sell at a loss with the hope that this propels the industry forward, that you can make a profit in the future? Because I've heard at this conference some very low prices quoted for batteries, what OEMs are paying, but that's not the true cost of them. It's suppliers who are betting on the future. Is Aptiv ready to make that kind of a bet? Well, the good news is, is that my focus is the technology and the engineering, um, and there's other people that talk about the financials and, and make those kind of decisions. 
Okay. I won't press you on that. <laughs> from, from an analyst standpoint, Aptiv does not do anything that doesn't make economic sense or make a profit. So I, 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 think, I, I think in Jada's defense, I think Aptiv is very focused on profitability and returns. But, but I do think we're going to start to see a lot more collaborations. You've got Ford and VW now collaborating on electrification. That's one way to help with the cost burden that we're seeing. And I think we'll see more and more of those partnerships forming, not only in the electrification side, but also in the autonomy side. One of the big uh, discussions here, John, tariffs and the, the, the whole trade imbroglio that we're going through right now. What did you pick up on, if anything, or what are some of your thoughts along these lines? Well, I mean, after covering the industry for 20 years, you think you've seen it all until, uh, until 2016 hit, and now, now we've got to worry about trade. Um, you know, I, I think you know, in, the, in the trade panel yesterday, uh, Ann Wilson made some very interesting points uh, about the potential disruption uh, in the industry, but I think uh, Michael Dunn made some very interesting points about how the Chinese uh, may have not treated the U.S. markets and the U.S. economy that fairly and the way that they, they've dealt with things as far as IP transfer and openness of, of the market, um, as well as other markets around the world, not, not just even China. So I, I do think you're kind of, you know, in this, you know, in this tug of war once again of, you know, what is, what is fair to, to, to the U.S. from a, a free trade, um, you know, from a tre- free trade perspective, which really hasn't been fair for a really long time. So a lot of these issues that have been allowed to fester for a long time are manifesting in some of these very tough actions that are, that are being taken. Um, no doubt the tariffs would be disruptive and, and potentially damaging for a, a period of time. But somebody, you know, in the future may argue that 10 to 20 years down the line, there might be more manufacturing jobs in the U.S. and we might be better off for it. It's a real tough thing to figure out right now. But in, in the interim, it's incredibly disruptive because suppliers, automakers, uh, everybody in the value chain doesn't know where to put capital, right? Because they're uncertain as to where their costs are, are going to be. So we have massive uncertainty. We have a lot of companies pulling back on CapEx and, and capital investment, which means jobs are lower and it's very disruptive in the near term. So... I think you know getting this worked out sooner rather than later, and hopefully making you know trade a lot fairer is really really the end goal without that much disruption. Yeah, I was looking it up this morning. Just what other countries charge in terms of import tariffs of automobiles? I looked at Brazil, Turkey, Indonesia, Russia, Europe. They're all way way higher than what the U.S. charges. So, Carla, what do you think? Fair trade, free trade? Which way is it going to go? <laughs> I don't think anybody knows right now. I think one of the most shocking takeaways I had from yesterday was the statement that this could go on for 20 to 30 years. I mean, this is our new kind of, you know, it was the space war and industrial war, and now we have the trade war. Um, I do believe that there has to be a common ground. Um, right now, everybody is, is really holding up barriers, especially between China and, and, and U.S., other countries are starting to be you know, quite reasonable in terms of negotiations. When we look at what's happening with Japan, South Korea, everyone wants to get this settled. Industry and business needs this to be settled as soon as possible because you cannot work in limbo land. You need to have things figured out. Um, right now, yes, many of the tariffs that have been put in place are harming you know, some of the businesses here. It's very clear. We can see it in the, in the dollars that are, that are you know, being lost on a, at every, every you know, investment round. But in the long run, probably it will make more sense. But we don't know right now. And, and this, is, this is why we're constantly analyzing what's happening. Um, more jobs, more production opportunities seems it's the way we want to go. We want to become the manufacturing powerhouse we once were. If tariffs are the right way to do that, 
remains to be seen. So John, what, what do you think? Fair trade, free trade, which way is the needle going to move? Well, I mean, I mean hopefully for all of us, it's, it's fair free trade, right? And that's what probably makes the sense for, for most sense for, for, for everybody. Um, but getting there uh, is, 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 as Carly was mentioning, is, 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 a, is a very difficult transition. And unfortunately, you know, at the same time as the industry is going through a cyclical downturn, technological secular disruption, we're getting this incremental layer of, of uncertainty thrown into the equation. And I think just as Carla just mentioned, is that, you know, that level of uncertainty on, on, on another major factor for the industry makes it very challenging to, to manage through. Um, but ultimately, hopefully we get, you know, fair free trade. I like that term. I'm going to use that. Well, I just used two of your words, so I just put them together. <laughs> Listen, we've been talking about a secular downturn. We've been talking about electrification and the disruption. We've been talking about trade. Let's talk about some of the bright spots that might be there for the future. Jada, what opportunities do you see going forward in the industry right now? Well, it's all about those megatrends I mentioned, safe, green, and connected. We've talked green. Um, safe people tend to automatically go towards a full level four, level five vehicle. Um, we're obviously making great strides in that space with our service that we have going on in Las Vegas. Um, we've given a little more than 60,000 rides. Uh, we have a 4.95 user rating, and, and it is, to our knowledge, the largest commercial ride-hailing service leveraging AV. So great strides there. But it's not a one-size-fits-all problem that we're trying to solve, which means we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution. So it's also very important that we develop those um, levels zero through three systems that John talked about earlier. And we do that. We have um, a scalable architecture um, that allows us to, and allows our OEMs to scale up and down to deliver advanced safety features for consumers today. Um, that's, that's changing people's lives today, but at the same time planning for what the future looks like. On the connected front, it's, everyone talks about data. Data is important, but the insights that we gain from that data is where the real value is. And so unlocking the power of that data, gathering those insights, and using them in new ways is incredibly important. Can you give us just a for instance? Um, well, one of the things we, we highlighted at um, CES this year, um, we had our fleet of AVs running around um, providing on the lift network providing um, rides to consumers. So we're able to use some of that data to, I, we called it the casino report. Um, and we basically were able to go in and say, okay, um, if a consumer is going to a particular casino at specific times, um, or they're leaving a casino at specific times, what does that look like? Could that provide some insights to that casino so they know, hey, we need to add a new restaurant venue. Um, we're losing people at the dinner hour, or we're losing people at the show hours because another venue has a different show. Um, how can we keep them in a particular ecosystem so they're going from one property to the same owner's property, right? So that was incredibly insightful, and it was taking data that we, that we have, but how can we use it in a way to provide insights to um, a business that perhaps hadn't thought about it that way? Carla, same question. What opportunities are there out there for the future in the automotive industry? I'm seeing some amazing things happening, especially when we look at our aging society and some of the, the current demonstrations and trials that are starting to enable people to get to their medical appointments, to enable people within senior living communities to have options besides driving themselves around, trialing in, in contained areas, and that only makes us smarter then to begin to deploy in other areas. But we're starting with those populations that need the help the most. 
um, persons with disabilities, be they cognitive or physical disabilities. And we're actually seeing some good results there. So I like the way the industry is going in that regard, learning but helping society at the same time. This is wonderful. And then the old, let's call it the old stuff. Let's not forget the old stuff. Internal combustion engines keep getting better year over year. Vehicles keep getting lighter. We saw some amazing lightweighting awards that were given out here, and, and people are continuing to do that research. Smart factories going out and listening to the workers, having old workers work with young workers and get better ideas and be able to make things more efficient on the factory floor and make it a better environment. So, you know, not only are we doing the shiny, bright, and new stuff, which is cool and great to talk about, but all the old stuff is also being improved at, at a very fast pace. And this is what I like about the industry right now. Wherever you are, there's cool, advanced stuff happening. And John, i got to believe, being on Wall Street, you're looking at all kinds of new opportunities, maybe even new companies coming on. Well, I mean, I, I think the industry, uh, maybe it's a function of, you know, the humble, polite, you know, Midwesterner, you know, day, you know that dominates this industry uh, in the U.S., but is not sort of as forthright as what it delivers to society, and it delivers mobility. And to Carla's point just about, you know, the, the old folks being able to get to their doctor's appointment, it's everybody being able to get any, everywhere. I mean, if, if it weren't for the auto industry, you'd all be driving around in horse and buggies and traveling at like 10% of the speed that we do right now. So I think that you know, the industry uh, you know, has all of these opportunities in front of it. They, maybe I need to look back at history to understand you know, that you know, there was a shift from horse and buggy to cars in the, 19, you know, in the 1930s, the Model T. I think uh, Tobin had a, a great slide on, on that before, where the speed of travel went up by a factor of five to you know, eight, eight times. Um, the industry has this opportunity to potentially really increase the speed of travel safely, um, more effectively for, for more, more folks. At, at, at a lower cost. And then society as a whole benefits quite dramatically. So the function of this industry of getting people from A to B quickly, safely, and cheaply can be improved on and create, can create a lot of value for, for investors. And that's in a myriad of ways. Aptiv does it. You know, many other suppliers are doing that. And it's a huge opportunities for the industry. But they've got to get out of this sort of humble, polite position and get a little bit more aggressive and say, hey, we're providing you a whole lot of value. We can provide a whole lot more over time um, and get to it. Because if they don't, there's tech companies that are more than willing to step into this space, right? I, I, I think the auto industry can, can hold their own and we'll keep moving forward. All right. Thank you for saying that, brother. <laughs> Look, we're going to have to wrap it up. I, I know we only hit some of the, skimmed over some of the highlights. There was so much more detail that went on at this conference. But I think this helps, you know, recap what we've learned, brings it to uh, an audience, a television audience, a, a live YouTube audience as well. So. I want to thank all three of you. Carla Bailo from the Center for Automotive Research, John Murphy from Merrill Lynch Bank of America, Jada Smith from Aptiv. Thank you very much for sharing some of your insights of what we've learned over the last two and a half days here. Thank you. Thank you. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities.
Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.